I said when we began this series that uh, we are not going to be preaching the Reformers, and I want to emphasize that again, even as maybe that focused on the uh, specific role that Martin Luther had in the Reformation. We are preaching and delighting in the doctrines of the Reformation, on the gospel and on the teachings that, uh, that shook the world. And even as uh, Sproul mentions there in the video, we believe that, uh, that this is the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that we are confident that Jesus is coming again as King and as Lord, and so we can celebrate the, in history the ways that God has preserved the gospel and uh, to admire those that God used, but we, we don't pedestal them. They themselves are the pedestal. On the pedestal is Jesus Christ, and he alone we, we worship. Now, to that, uh, to that point, two weeks from today, we are going to be having a family chat, a powwow with you about Bethel Church, about where we are, about where we uh, believe we're going. And uh, we do this occasionally, and these are really important Sundays for us, and we have one of these coming up in two weeks. And so I encourage you to come and be a part of it. It's not bad news, it's good news, it's exciting news, but uh, it's important news, and I hope that you'll make a point to come. The world of of the 16th century was very different than our world in many respects, But also, in the most important things, was exactly the same as us. How was it different? Well, it was different, obviously, in that the lifestyles of the people were very different than the lives that we live right now. I mean, we have so many creature comforts right now that we just take for granted, right? Our technologies, electricity, right? I had had some workers, they cut my internet cable uh, two days ago. It was like we were back in the dark ages, uh, for, for two days, just not having internet cable at the house. And things like that, that we just grow accustomed to depending on, they didn't have. Like survival was actually part of the challenge. That's why if you want to kind of know what life was like, you, you sort of have to tune into a show like Survivor and say, okay, that's kind of how they, they live their lives. One clear way that it was different, though, was religiously. In the 16th century in Western Europe, you had... Basically, you had one church in town. There was only one church. If you've seen pictures of of Europe, you'll see these little communities, and in the middle of the little community, this huge church, and you're like, how did that great big church come out of that little community? That was the religious life of the day. And in that church, there was one guy, a priest, who was for you the sole voice of spiritual truth because you didn't have a Bible. Nobody had a Bible, and nobody thought to themselves, I think I should have a Bible, because for a thousand years, nobody had a Bible, and even if you would have had a Bible at that time, it would have done you no good because it was in Latin, and the only people that knew Latin were the the educated class and the clergy, so a lot of good it would have had. Maybe you thought to yourself, wait, nice to be able to read this in my own language, but nobody was doing that then, but there was this one priest and what he said was all that you could ever know. You're not podcasting the priest from, for, uh, from three communities over. You're not reading books that you own on spiritual truth. There is none of that. This is all that you know. And he was, for you, the guy. Like, you went and you confessed your sins to him. You watched him on Sundays perform spiritual rituals. Even the Lord's Supper, at that time, 
The priest would do the Lord's Supper, he would partake, but nobody else partook in the Lord's Supper. You would sit and watch him partake in the Lord's Supper. That and many other things like that was the experience of the day. The teaching of the church is that we, we are, this is at that time, we are the dispensers of grace. We are the ones that hold it and we can give it to you if we think we should. And that's where that whole indulgence thing came from. As the church said, let's monetize the grace of God. What a great fundraising idea uh, we have. If you have a sin that you've done that you're doing or that you're thinking about doing, just give us a little money, we'll give you grace for it and you're forgiven in the eyes of God. Back in my single days when I would talk about this, I would say I think that uh, many of the buildings were built from the funds of single men who were donating to the indulgences. But uh, I digress. Um, The vestments of the priest was a reminder that he was special and sacred and you were not. You would see him walking around town, you'd just see the way that he looked and he dressed. He is set apart from God, I am not. He is special, I am not. There was this very sharp distinction between the clergy and the laity. And even the buildings, okay, these buildings, they're, they're huge, they're dark, they're foreboding, right? There's mystery about what these buildings are, are all about. There is, uh, uh, I, I heard one guy that described the, the church as the church of the smells and the bells, right? There's rituals and all these different things that left the common people unsure about their standing with God. What can I know? What can I believe? I have no Bible to read to know for myself what it teaches. And this was the time uh, in, the, in the culture of the day. Now here's where these people were the same as us. Just like you and me, they wondered, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What happens to me when I die? And death was a very present reality in that time because uh, they didn't have the medicine. And they, you ever heard of the plague? Like the plague would show up and the whole village is dead. You never knew when the plague was going to come. And then you had armies all around that were threatening and you didn't know when they were showing up. It's not like they had, you know, like the drones that were giving reports on the advancing armies. All of a sudden there they are on the hill and we're dead, right? So there was that uncertainty about life and death and these people wondering, what is my standing before God? How can I know that I have eternal life? How can I know that, my, that my, my sins are forgiven? In a context where the church, the one church and the one voice said it with obscurity. Or that's not the right word, but with uh, uh, mystery. Mystery's better. So into that medieval culture, there came a light. And the light was a truth that was older than the priests, older than the papacy, and older than the cathedrals. It was the truth of the gospel as Jesus had given it to the apostles. And as the apostles had written it down in Holy Scripture, that was the light that all of a sudden everybody realized, wait a second, what we have thought and believed up to this point is not aligned with what God's word says. And that gospel that came out of that and that understanding of how I can have a right relationship with God and know that my sins are forgiven was the light that changed the world. What was that light? It was that scripture is the authority over the church. Not the church, but scripture is the authority over the church. 
That light was that we are saved not by me reaching up to God with my good works or my religion, but God reaching down to me, sola grace. That salvation is not me somehow meriting the righteousness of God, but it is by faith alone, sola fide, that I am justified and declared righteous before a holy God. And then that Jesus is our sufficient priest, that he is our priest. And that truth became known as sola Christus in the Latin, or Christ alone. And that is the sola, our final sola in our series leading up to next week, the ending of it on Reformation Sunday. And so I today am talking to you about sola Christus, Christ alone. As we have seen with the other solas, it was not so much that the church had been subtracting from the doctrines that the Bible teaches as much as they were adding to them. And that adding to them, that sort of gospel plus on all of these categories of the sola, obscured the, tr- the real truth of the gospel from the people. And so just like with sola scriptura, that they added the teachings of the church and the traditions and made them equal with scripture, the reformers are cutting off all of these additions and saying, what is the essential gospel? And when it comes to understanding Christ, who is he? And what does he do exactly? And why and how did the church over the centuries add to, or in my opinion, seek to replace the responsibilities of Christ? If the, if the Reformation had a systematic theologian, it was a guy by the name of John Calvin. Maybe you've heard his name before, John Calvin. So Luther was like the revolutionary, Zwingli. They, they, these were the ones that they were the call to change Uh, Calvin was the intellectual of the Reformation. He ministered in Geneva, Switzerland, and he took these teachings and he made them into a systematic theology. And famously, he wrote what is known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. By the way, he wrote them when he was 25. Any 25-year-olds here working on a, like, landmark theology? Probably not, right? That's pretty young, but that's just the brainiac that Calvin was. And he added to it over the course of his life, so much so that uh, it became very, very long. In fact, a couple years ago, I realized I've never read Calvin's Institutes. Before I die, I should probably read Calvin's Institutes. And so I kind of like made a goal, I'm going to read Calvin's Institutes. What I didn't realize was that Calvin's Institutes is as long as the Bible itself. Same length. So I'm on my, my iPad with my Kindle app reading Calvin's Institutes, and it's like, I'm flipping, I'm flipping, I'm flipping, I'm flipping, my finger's getting like this cramp from flipping and flipping, and I'm noticing the percentage, you know, after all that flipping, I advanced like 1% of the book that I've read. It's like, how long is this thing? But it was, it's very, very long. Um, In that theology, Calvin famously describes the role of Christ as a threefold office, not a three office, but a threefold office, that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Maybe you've heard that language before, that he is our prophet, priest, and king. You'll hear it in hymns and songs celebrated. And so that's going to be my outline for you as we talk about sola Christus. What does it mean that he is that? And that he is sufficient and all-sufficient as our prophet, priest, and king. Now I'm going to spend just a little bit of time on prophet and king and most of our time on priests, because it's the most uh, relevant for us today. So quickly, let's talk about Jesus as our all-sufficient prophet. 
What is a prophet? A prophet is somebody that speaks for God to us. He speaks for God to us. So if you're reading the Old Testament, the prophets came along and they said, thus saith the Lord, right? Thus saith the Lord, and the people would listen. What does God have to say? That's what a prophet does. So famous prophets would be like Moses or Elijah or in the New Testament, John the Baptist. These were individuals who spoke. They spoke with clarity. They famously would not compromise because they were speaking for God. Jesus is our prophet. And more than Isaiah and more than Moses and more than Elijah, Jesus faithfully represented the truth of God to us. Listen to John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He himself embodies the truth. It's found in Christ. Here's John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses. Okay, there's a prophet. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. Here's John 17, verse 8. Here's the words of Jesus. For I have given them the words that you gave me. If you want to know what a prophet is, a prophet is this right here. They take the words that God gives them and they speak it to the people. Jesus did that faithfully. So a prophet speaks for God to the people and Jesus is the completion. He is the perfect prophet of God to us. Secondly, Jesus is our all-sufficient king. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because we spent all last year talking about Jesus as king of the kingdom of God. Do you remember? The kingdom of God, the reign, the redemptive reign of God through Christ, where this kingdom is so different than the kingdoms of this world. You might remember when Jesus was betrayed that night, Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Jesus says, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Pilate, you Romans think about kingdoms in terms of military and political power. My kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. And that kingdom is established in this world when a sinner trusts and believes in Jesus. He is enthroned in our hearts as Lord, and we become a part of the kingdom of God. It is a real kingdom. And after Jesus said that, you might remember that Pilate trolls him by placing over Jesus as he hangs on the cross, dying. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. What was that? It was a mockery. He was basically saying, look what happens to anybody that stands up against the might and the power of Rome. He mocks Jesus. Today, I think Jesus mocks Pilate. Because what do we know? We know that Jesus is... King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is ruling and reigning right now on the highest throne. What a comfort it was for the early Christians in that first century to realize that no matter how powerful Rome is and Caesar or a crazy Caesar like Nero who would impale Christians and light them on fire as streetlights in the city of Rome, that above Nero there is a higher throne and sitting on that throne is our blessed Savior Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and my Savior. That's why that word Lord was so important and should be still to this day for us, that Jesus is there. He is a king, the son of David, the royal throne and line and lineage of David. When he returns, Revelation 15 tells us, 
that on his thigh will be written King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus, Christos, Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know everybody here right now, but I'll tell you one thing about you. You're going to bow someday. Either willingly or unwillingly, you're going to bow before the king because Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. All praise be to him as king. He is our all-sufficient king. We need no other. He is our all-sufficient prophet. But I want to spend most of my time on priest, that Jesus is our all-sufficient priest. And now we get into the text of God's word. If you have a Bible, I would turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 7, okay? Hebrews 7. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 23, okay? So we're just kind of like dropping in like a bomb here in Hebrews, a letter written by a Jew, written to Jews about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Levitical worship and sacrifices, and so he is arguing convincingly that Jesus fulfills all of that. And he begins now, or he he says here in verse 23, I'll begin reading, the former priests, okay, so this is This is not 16th century priests. We're talking about Old Testament priests. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Okay, like presidents of the United States. We've had a lot of them over the years. Why? Well, they die and there's term limits. Okay, but that's term limits is not the point here. I'm digressing big time. Am I not? Should I just not read scripture? Isn't that just quit commenting and read it? But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Precious words. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There's the gospel. Those who put their faith in Jesus, they draw near to God through Christ since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son, capital S, who has been made perfect forever. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. May God bless his word to his people today. A prophet represents God to man. A priest does the opposite. A priest represents us to God. He stands as a kind of mediator between the people and their sins and God in his holiness. And this language here flows out of the Old Testament. So if you're a new Christian, maybe you're new to the Bible, this may sound uh, different to you. But in the Old Testament, God established a relationship with a nation, Israel. 
And he did so with a series of covenants that established how this relationship should be and how it should work and how their worship of him would happen. And it was largely based upon a sacrificial system where a common Israelite would come to the tabernacle, come to the temple, would bring an offering as a sacrifice for their sin. The priest would be there working, serving at the temple, would take the animal, would kill the animal, and would symbolically lay his hands on the animal, symbolizing a transfer of guilt for, from the sinner, the Israelite, to the animal, and then offer it as a sacrifice to God. And you see the role of the priest in that, don't you? He is there, he is in between. He is representing the people in their sin to a holy God. That's the role of a priest. Now, Jesus brings a new covenant, right? That's Our Bible is somewhat divided into Old Testament and New Testament. Old covenant and new covenant. Jesus said in the upper room when he established the Lord's Supper, this is my, held the cup up, this is my, uh, this cup is the cup of, a, of the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And from that point on now, there's a new relationship between God and man. When Jesus died, something happened in the temple. Do you remember? What happened? The veil was torn. By the way, which direction? Top to bottom. It was not man going to God. It was God coming to man and opening up then now this new relationship. No longer do we need a temple and a holy place, and earthly that is, and a most holy place, now access to God is not through a temple, but it comes through Jesus, who is our priest, who represents us to God. And our temple, by the way, is in heaven now. And our high priest, by the way, is there as well, representing us to God the Father. Now sadly, by the 16th century, the time of uh, the reformers, what had happened was that the church, over the centuries, through their teaching and traditions, had wormed their way into roles and responsibilities that biblically were reserved for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, where they had said, no, 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 the church will take care of those things, not the Trinity. And that is what the Reformers reacted against, and uh, when, when they taught about this, can you imagine all these people for centuries, they've had one way of looking at it, one way of thinking about it, and all of a sudden now, they discover, wait, the way that we have seen this is not right. It is not biblical. It is not true. So the writer of Hebrews presents Jesus as our faithful high priest, that he is a priest, he's a different priest, different than the Levites. Now, who are the Levites? The Levites were the descendants of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, that God had designated to this one purpose. You are going to be the people that minister in the tabernacle and in the temple. You are going to be the priests set apart unto God. And these Levites, they did this faithfully over all of these centuries. But Jesus was not born of Levi. Who was Jesus born of? What tribe? 
He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the average Jew would look at this and say, he can't be a priest because he's not of, of Levi. And the writer of Hebrews reaches back into the Old Testament, into Genesis 14, and he pulls out this enigmatic character by the name of Melchizedek. And the story of Melchizedek is that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, S-A-L-E-M. Does that sound like anything familiar to you? Salem. What city does that sound like? Jerusalem, right? The city of peace. Melchizedek comes out and meets Abraham. Abraham has just fought a war. He has won the war. He's got all the spoils of war. He meets Melchizedek. Abraham takes 10% of everything that he gained in that war, and he gives it as a tithe to Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews says, what does that mean? Who's greater, Abraham or Melchizedek? And clearly, Melchizedek is the superior. Abraham's the great-grandfather of Levi, and yet he gives tithes to Melchizedek. And the writer says, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek not by lineage from Levi, but by divine decree from God. And he serves as that priest forever because he doesn't die. That's the problem with popes, pastors, and priests that you really, really like. Let's just speak of that theoretically. Um, no matter how much you like them, what happens to them? They die. They die. And then the next one comes along, and who knows what he's like and whether you like him or not. And he, he writes this. That's why there was high priest, high priest, high priest, high priest, high priest, all these high priests. They were human. They die. But Jesus is a permanent priest. Why? Because he is the Son of God. His priesthood is grounded in the eternal character that is his as the Son of God. He's never going to die. He will always be there. He lives forever in this mediatorial role, representing us to God. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, wonderful truth, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever asked yourself, what is Jesus doing right now? We know he ascended to heaven, Acts 1. We know he's coming back someday. What has he been doing for 2,000 years up there? Like, is, is he just at the right hand of God? He's sort of like, hey, you know, Father, you let me know when the time's coming to, for, for me to go back, and I will. But until then, I'm just going to sort of chill. Just sort of hanging out here in heaven, waiting for the return. No. This text makes it clear that Jesus is ministering on our behalf. That he is, the, the word is, interceding for us. Think of it. Right now, Jesus is interceding to the Father for our church. And not just our church corporately. He is interceding for every single genuine believer in our church, praying for you by name. Think of that. You know that thing that you came in today with, that burden, that issue? 
I shared mine earlier. Would it be a comfort to you if right now you knew that behind that curtain right there was the Son of God, and if you could listen, he's there and he's pleading to the Father for you by name and that issue on your heart today. Would that be a comfort? I would think it would be a comfort. He's praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. What is intercession? Here's a definition. It is the priestly work of Christ in which he represents us and our needs to the Father and prays for the application of covenantal promises and blessings to us, which the sacrifice of his own life made possible. He intercedes for us. How qualified is he to do this? Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With Christ, friends, we have this amazing combination of perfect identification and perfect representation. He perfectly identifies with us. How? He's human. Jesus is entirely human. And he lived on this earth just like you and I do. And he experienced in his time on earth the gambit of human emotions and struggles and pains and sorrows. In fact, arguably, much more than we do. He experienced them. And so when we cry out to God with our issue and our challenge, it's not like God's, Jesus is in heaven hearing that prayer going, what's wrong with you? Right? No. He identifies with our weakness. In his heart, he hears our weak prayer and he thinks to himself, I so can relate to that. I have been there. I have done that. I have felt that. I get it. That's a good summary. Jesus says, I get it. I totally get it. But that combined with perfect representation. He identifies with our weakness, but then he represents us perfectly to God because he himself is God also. And he communicates to the Father our needs perfectly. He always is interceding, but he never, he never prays to the Father against the will of the Father. He always prays according to the will of the Father. And in that way, he is in between us in our weak prayers, our selfish prayers, our prideful prayers, and makes them perfect prayers to the Father. Since we're doing church history, how about one more? Fourth century preacher, famous guy by the name of John Chrysostom, illustrates it this way. He said, it's like a family where the dad goes away on a trip for a long time. And he's about to come home. And the mom says to the boy, hey, your dad's about to come home. Why don't you go out and pick some flowers for when he arrives? And the boy's all excited. And so he goes outside and he begins to pick flowers. But he's a young boy and 
Kind of like my daughter. My daughter thinks a dandelion's the most beautiful flower in the world, right? He doesn't know the difference between flowers and weeds. He just is grabbing everything he can. And he comes back to mom and he presents this pile of vegetation. The next day, dad comes home. And the mom says, these are from your son. And presents to him a bouquet of flowers. Now, what did the mom do? The mom picked out all the weeds and presented only the flowers. What does Jesus do with our prayers and our cries? Let's be honest. So many of them selfish. You know who you are, right? So selfish, our prayers. Like, it'd be embarrassing to be God the Father in heaven, don't you think? If he was actually hearing those, he'd be like going, Like what? Well, I want this, and I want that, and then I want this, and then I want that. In Jesus' name, amen. God, I pray that you would take this out of my life. I'm so tired of it. Oh, Father, this person is annoying me to death. Could you please remove them from my life experience? I am so tired of this issue in my life. God, please, please. And on and on, right? Prayers that are just, there's weeds of selfishness and ego and pride and all the things that flow from it. Anybody pray any prayers like that this week? That sound familiar? Again, you know who you are. But as you prayed those prayers, flowing out of human weakness, Jesus, as our priest in between, hears those, takes those prayers, and converts them into prayers that are according to the will of the Father. So that, for example, we pray, God, take this pain away. The Father hears from Jesus, Father, give her grace to meet every trial. We pray, God, give me money because I want this and I want that. God hears, give him more of yourself that you might be his satisfaction. The discouraged person prays, God, give me different circumstances. I can't take it anymore. The Father hears from Jesus, let him know that your grace is sufficient. The dying Christian prays, God, I am afraid about what's going to happen. The father hears, let her know that you will never leave her nor forsake her, and there is nothing to fear. And God always answers yes to the prayers of the intercessory prayers of Jesus because Jesus always prays according to the will of the Father, perfectly interceding. For us. And the text says that he ever lives to pray for us. Think of that. He doesn't, this is not his nine to five gig. It's not like when he gets around to it in heaven with lots of other things going on that are priorities to him. He ever lives to pray for us. He loves to intercede for us. He wants to intercede for us. He loves the church. He loves you. And he loves to pray for you. Now that's a priest, isn't it? And here's the question of the Reformation. What sinner can do that? What normal human being sinner could possibly do what Jesus does? 
and do it better. Like, why replace Jesus if he's so amazing in his role? And yet, that is what the church over the centuries had done, had sought to replace Jesus with the church or with the leaders of the church or to simply illustrate it this way. So here's what Hebrews is teaching, that Jesus is the go-between between us and God. This is what was going on in the Reformation time, that it was Jesus and the church, but because the people didn't know the Bible, the de facto actual in-between was the church. And boy, is that a problem. To give you some examples of this, I heard an interview with an Australian evangelical named Philip Jensen. Maybe you've read some of his books over, over the years. But he points this out. I never really thought about it. But he points out what was most certainly part of what Luther and the Reformers were reacting against in this medieval church. For example, what did Pope mean? What did Pope mean? Father. It means father. What did Jesus say? Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. No need to replace God the Father. He's very good at being God the Father. The Pope was called the vicar of Christ. What does vicar mean? Vicar means substitute. The substitute of Christ. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can't sub Jesus out. Why would you want to, right? Another ancient title, pontiff. What does pontiff mean? Pontiff means bridge. The bridge between man and God. What did Jesus say? Again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Another example, slightly different branch of the tree, but St. Paul's Church in London, England, famous church, massive church, Anglican church. I understand if you walk in the doors of that church, above the door it says this. This is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. What did Jesus say? I am the door through which all men must enter. And you see how easy and how we succumb to subbing out things that Jesus does with some kind of man-made thing or idea or person that over time, at first it's kind of like, hey, that seems weird, but over time it becomes normal and acceptable. Even though it's unbiblical. All of these imply that somehow Jesus isn't enough But my friends, he is enough and is better than anything we could come up with, anything that we could do. We don't need any other intercessor, whether that be priests or Jesus' mom or Peter himself. It's Christ and Christ alone. And that's what the Reformers said so powerfully and so wonderfully and so like enlighteningly. Is that a word? I don't know. But it was just so great. And we don't need any other prophet, priest, or king. Christ is enough and is wonderful. A few years ago, we had a 
uh, we organized a trip from our church, okay, a Steps of Paul trip. And so people signed up, and we went on this trip, and we went over to uh, Eastern Europe, and we went to some of the, you know, the places that Paul had ministered. So we went to Philippi, and we went to Thessalonica, and we went to Corinth and Athens, and it was really cool. I mean, you read these books, you read about him and all that, and now you're standing in the city, and you're kind of seeing the place that he ministered. It's really, it was, it was a great trip. On the trip was uh, a 20-something woman from our church who came out of the same background that Luther did and who had had a personal conversion experience in our church. And like she was just on fire for God. And going on this trip was actually a part of, I think, her being like on fire for God because I knew what her vocation was and this was a huge sacrifice for her financially to go on this trip. But she was so excited. And so she went on the trip. She went to all these places. Well, one of the places that we went on the trip was Rome. And if you go to Rome, you go to the Vatican. And we went to the Vatican. And if you go to the Vatican, you go to see St. Peter's Basilica. Okay? Now, you've seen St. Peter's Basilica probably on television. Uh, huge, largest church in the world. Amazing architecture and building and beauty. And, like, I remember when I, we first stepped into the building, and you just kind of, like, you just sort of look up, and it's like, you know, and you think, how did they do this without cranes and all the mechanisms that we have these days? They built this thing 500 years ago. By the way, they built it with the money from the indulgences that Luther was responding to when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in the first place. So there's a tie-in to, to, to history. So here's this massive building. And, uh, you know, it's just huge. It, it reminds me of that line from Hoosiers where they step into Hinkle Fieldhouse and they say, boy, you could store a lot of hay in here. You could put a lot of hay in St. Peter's Basilica. And so, you know, you stand there, you look at it, and there's just amazing beauty and architecture in this place. It's just brilliant. And you've got all this wonderful artwork, like there's Michelangelo's stuff, and here's Bernini and others I don't even know about. But it's just like on the ceiling, on the walls, it's all around. It's just, it's just really gorgeous, honestly. It's just gorgeous. But that's combined with, speaking as a Protestant, some kind of creepy things, honestly, because you, you look around actually and you realize that all around the whole place are the crypts of dead popes that they have under, behind glass and in caskets where the top of it is shaped like the man's face and body. So there he lays, you know, like this. And They've got the vestments on him that he wore, you know, 600 years ago. There they are, still on him. I actually like the idea, and I've reserved a spot in the comments for me, actually. <laughs> but there's people, they're bowing down all over to statues and dead popes and lighting candles to this, that, and the other. And there's, a, there's one statue there that has a big toe that for centuries people have gone and they have kissed this big toe. For centuries. Think of the millions of people that have kissed that same big toe. And if you want to kiss the big toe, you had better get in line because there is a long line of people waiting to kiss the big toe. And you just sort of were like, for me, I was like, really? You know? And gross, right? <laughs> so all that to say, 
that was my kind of initial experience. Well, I happened to be standing next to this woman who comes out of the faith background. And I look over at her, and she has these tears. They're just flowing down her face. And I said to her, I said, i got to ask you, in light of your story and testimony, what are you thinking as you look around and you see this? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, these are the things that got in the way. These are the things that got in the way. Got in the way of what? Got in the way of seeing with clarity Christ and Christ alone. Got in the way of me understanding that my priest, my access to God, is not through a building or a church or a sinner, but is through Christ and through Christ alone. Got in the way of me understanding that my salvation comes by faith alone. That it's the grace of God to me as a sinner that allows me access to the throne of God. It got in the way. And how many people still, these kind of things are getting in the way? And maybe you're here today like that. Your story, your background, your sort of faith legacy Still the thing that you're trusting in. Still the thing that's kind of like your real hope for having your sins forgiven and ultimately landing with eternal life and glory. I wonder if maybe what shook the world 500 years ago could shake your life a little bit. I wonder if maybe things have gotten in the way. And even a message like this about the uniqueness of Jesus as our faithful prophet, priest, and king might take those blinders off and for you to have that moment in your story where you see that he is all-sufficient, that you need no other, that he loves you, he ever lives to intercede for you, he died for you. He's behind the curtain praying for you. Embrace that by faith and rejoice in it. What a wonderful truth, amen? amen? That Christ is there at the right hand of God as our faithful high priest. All praise be to him. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as I pray this prayer of human weakness, I pray that you would listen to Jesus, your son, as he cries out and prays for us, prays for this room. Praise for our lives, praise for our eternities, praise for our church. His prayer is better than mine, but I submit this by faith and ask that you would give us the kinds of eyes to see, the eyes of faith to see how wonderful, how glorious, how beautiful is Jesus, how all-sufficient everything we need is found in him. And may he be lifted high. All praise be to him. Amen.